Welcome to the Parent Advocate Podcast, a show where we celebrate, defend, support, and uplift the voices of the LGBTQIA community. I'm your host, Stephen Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Lisette Trujillo. Hello, everyone. Lisette here. She, her, Aya. The mission of the Parent Advocate Podcast is to elevate conversations and reframe narratives around trans and non-binary youth to help change hearts and minds. Each week, we bring you our take on things happening in the world from the perspective of two parents of BIPOC transgender kids. Season two, episode three, Lisette. I really feel like we are finding our rhythm and finding our groove. I'm loving it. I know, Steven. And once again, we've got a really good guest on our show today, AC Goldberg. Well, let's get to it. Welcome once again, everyone, to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. Hey, Steven, what have you been up to since the last time we spoke? Child, it is Black History Month, and I started this month off by watching The Greatest Night in Pop, which premiered at Sundance about the making of the We Are the World song in 1985. Now, did you know that that song was written by Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson? I had no idea. I did know that. Okay, well, you're better than me. <laughs> That's fine. I don't so care. I, my mom was like a huge Lionel Richie fan, and so like we had to watch Hello. Lisa, that movie was so interesting. It took me back like so far far back. I remember like Cindy Lauper and Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen and Steve Perry and Paul and Oates and Latoya Jackson, like all of the people in the room were people that I followed coming up. Obviously I'm dating myself, but it was such a good movie. It gave me the feels. I was just loving it. Steven, that was the year that Thriller came out too. Yes. And so that Christmas, my Nana Delia bought all of us Michael Jackson Barbies and he had like the red leather jacket with the glove. Yes. So we all got the Michael Jackson Barbie or I guess oh it was God. like the Michael Jackson collection doll or whatever. It was a big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. I am so looking forward to somebody picking up Will Ferrell's movie because I'm just now in a movie watching space because it's cold and it's damp and it's wet. And so you don't really want to be outside. So you just want to curl up in the bed on the couch with the blanket and just watch movies. So that's what I've been doing is watch movies. I wish I could report that I've been doing more with my time, but I haven't. What have you been up to? Well, you heard that Netflix bought Will and Harper. <laughs> I did not. Yes, it just came out today. Uh, Netflix picked up Will and Harper, and it will be on their streaming platform. I don't know when, but I can't they, have, they found a home, so that's real exciting. Super exciting. Alongside the dads. Alongside the dads, that's rightly said. That's right. Steven, you've been a witness to my like my literal like craziness today. Yes, I have. Um, meetings all morning. We have uh, Senator Kavanaugh is trying to bring a ballot initiative that would be a bathroom and pronoun ban here in the state of Arizona. So, you know, really connecting with like Latinx leaders in my area to let them know about what's happening and kind of hear their ideas and perspectives on how we can educate community should this pass out of legislation and be put on the ballot in November. I can't believe that it's only February 2nd. And legislative session has already felt like this crazy experience again that I can't tell you I'm tired of. It's like year five or something. I don't know anymore of having to deal with this awful Groundhog Day uh, that we call a legislative session. So life is crazy. And then Daniel joined the Tucson Jazz Institute. And so like now this weekend... 
we're going to prep for, you know, ledge next week. I run support group next Saturday. And so I got to make sure everything's ready for that too. And then Daniel has a concert this weekend that he's added and practice for his concert. And I just want to take a moment to a really important queer leader, Josefina Almada, passed away, a Latinx queer leader here in Tucson. Her funeral is um, next Saturday. And so just kind of like honoring people and trying to connect with community and make sure that like I'm doing all the things I need to organizing wise to bring people into the fold and to hold voices of people who've been organizing for decades and bring them in with the voices of our young kids today. So my heart is full and I also feel super stressed. But that's that's it in a nutshell. Ciao. We could talk about what you got going on all day, but we are going to lose time if we do that. So let's pivot and talk today's topic, shall we? Let's do it. Can you believe what's happening in Florida right now? Florida residents can no longer change their gender marker on their driver's licenses. According to a memo sent to state officials by Robert Kynock, the deputy executive director of the Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles, allowing residents to change their gender markers isn't supported by statutory authority. And so he has unilaterally barred the practice in the state of Florida. This is going to make things so messy when it comes to obtaining identity documents in Florida. And it, I'm sure it has to be challenged. This is just fuckery at its finest. And I'm sure that it has a lot of LGBTQIA people, especially trans and non-binary people, freaked out about what they're going to do. And to the people who already had their identity documents, hold on to that like it's gold. Absolutely. Did you hear about the Ohio Michigan Republican legislators who were caught on audio discussing the end game for anti-trans legislation? Apparently, there's a space on X formerly Twitter, where Republican legislators were discussing their strategies for eliminating gender-affirming care with anti-trans activist Prisha Mosley. Their stated endgame is banning gender-affirming care for everyone. And that surprises exactly who? Like, we have always known that they've been trying to erase trans people, and they've been trying to do so very methodically. So now that they're on tape saying the thing out loud, it's just that they're saying the thing out loud. Their intention has always been clear to anybody who's been paying attention. I also think like, good, I'm glad that it was caught on audio so that we can give it to the skeptics. Because how many of us have friends that are like, no, you're talk about it's it. not that deep. Talk about it. Ain't that the truth. Now, Utah just became the first state to advance anti-trans legislation this year with the House of Representatives approving one of the most extreme bathroom bills to date. House Bill 257 is the first piece of anti-LGBTQ plus legislation to be filed, passed, and enacted since the start of 2024. The law bars trans students from using bathrooms and lockers that align with their gender and also restricts access to changing rooms and government-owned facilities for trans people of all ages. I think that this is where we have to remind people that bathroom bans is the first line of segregation, right? You can't control where you're going to pee. So if you can't control that, you can't be in those spaces. And this is terrifying for everyone. Absolutely terrifying. LGBTQ plus advocates in Washington state are outraged after a string of inspections over the weekend included LGBTQIA plus establishments that were cited for lewdness. The Cuff Complex and the Seattle Eagle were subjected to what owners described as raids resulting in lewd conduct violations over patrons' clothing choices. You know, what's so crazy about this when I read it was that 
these are state inspectors going to determine whether or not these establishments are violating their liquor licenses. So they were there to enforce violations of the liquor laws and not a single citation for violating the state's liquor laws was issued, but a citation for lewdness because of the patron's clothes were issued to two different establishments. Like people need to see the obvious when it's right in front of them. Like these actions are discriminatory actions targeted because of the type of establishments that were being attacked, period. And it's also really important to highlight the fact that the state of Washington actually has non-discrim protections. And so having statewide non-discrim does not guarantee that this type of shit doesn't happen, right? Like if a state wants to mandate and or discriminate against LGBTQIA businesses, it will find a way. As case in proof, the Cuff Complex and Seattle Eagle and their violations. But Lisa, we could literally talk about this all day, but we have got to get to our guests. Let's bring them on. Dr. A.C. Goldberg is a physically disabled, intersex, transgender, DEIB consultant, professor, and speech-language pathologist whose mission is to cultivate affirming spaces for people of all neurotypes, races, genders, ages, religions, ethnicities, cultural backgrounds, and abilities. A.C. started his career in hospitals, where he faced significant employment discrimination, shaping much of the work he does today. His clinical and educational approaches center around empathy, humanity, and intersectional cultural responsiveness. His continuing education nonprofit, the Credit Institute, is dedicated to advancing equity in educational and healthcare settings. Recognized as one of the world's top recognized experts in gender-affirming voice care, he is the 2022 recipient of the American Speech-Language Hearing Association's Outstanding Service Award. Everyone, please welcome Dr. A.C. Goldberg to our show. Welcome to the show, Dr. A.C. Goldberg. It's so exciting to have you on the show. Thank you so much. You can call me AC. Yay. So for those who don't know, AC and I only recently met as co-panelists in a session for the Creating Change Conference in NOLA this past week. And although we didn't meet in person, thanks Mono, we struck up a friendship over Zoom and email, and he graciously agreed to be on our show. So it was interesting looking you up, preparing for this interview, and seeing just how steeped in this work you actually are. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it is that you actually do in real life? I do all of the things. And I'm really excited to tell you about them. In my daily life, the number one priority that I have, my number one job is that I'm a parent. I am just so... I don't know, in love with the life that I, I've created along with my partner, with my family, that that's, that's my number one priority. But I also do wear a lot of professional hats. I am a professor at Northeastern University where um, because I'm a speech language pathologist by trade and I'm known as one of the top gender affirming voice specialists in the world, I work as a professor at Northeastern University where I run a voice clinic. I teach a DEI course and I teach a trans health course through their Bouvet College of Health Sciences. I also also do a lot of consulting. So I have two different consulting businesses. One of them is called Transplaining. It's um, just basically creating transgender belonging in healthcare and educational settings. It started more broad and now it has a little bit more of a healthcare lens to it. And I have a nonprofit that is an intersectional cultural responsiveness DEI platform. Right now that's facing just my own profession only, communication sciences and disorders, professionals, speech language pathologists for listeners who don't know, kind of like specialized doctors who work on 
on language communication. Think about if you have a stroke and you need to recover your language, or if you um, have a child with a developmental language disability, they might see a speech language pathologist to help them learn how to communicate better or to help you understand how they communicate. That's what my training is in. I spent many years working in hospitals and schools and being discriminated against because I am trans. I'm also trans and intersex, which is an added component to my identity. I've also experienced a lot of medical discrimination. I do have a wonderful doctor now, but I'm 44 years old and it took me a very long time to have a care team that actually understands my needs. And that is still evolving. There isn't really intersex healthcare past uh, the age of pediatrics. And even that healthcare is really, it's poorly designed. It's designed to take intersex kids and mold them into a binary. Not a, It's not actually gender-affirming care. So um, there really isn't kind of good existing intersex healthcare. And I am really setting out to change that. Um, so through all of these things that I do, the common thread is that I want to make things better for people than they were for me. I want people to go to work and feel like they belong there. I want people go to, to go to the doctor and not get weird looks from the doctor because the doctor doesn't know what they're talking about. I want people to go to school and not have to deal with issues regarding like which bathroom they can use and what pronoun they're going to use. I want college students to be able to be housed comfortably with people who aren't going to enact violence on them. Um, and those are all of the sort of multifaceted ways that I consult and I exist in the world as a trans and intersex person person who's also physically disabled. So I do a lot of allyship and advocacy with different disability communities. And that's just a, a little bit about me. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, I've been following your work for quite some time uh, because I run a parent community down in Arizona for the Southern Arizona Gender Alliance. And you've been putting out a lot of really great resources. You have a newsletter that comes out via email. Um, and so our question is, you started a consulting company called Transplaining LLC. And your bio describes you as a physically disabled intersex transgender DA consultant and SLP whose mission is to cultivate affirming spaces for people of all neurotypes, races, gender, ages, religions, ethnicities, ultra backgrounds, and disabilities. Why did you land on the name Transplaining? And how do you come to this work outside of your love of parenting and personal experience? Why did you feel it important to kind of like create a larger platform? Well, there's a few answers there. Transplanting was almost born from a place of frustration. I would go into work every morning and trans kids would start to come in. I would get to work at 6.15 a.m. because I knew that the minute the building opened, I couldn't do any work, any preparation for the day. I had to get my prep done so that I could spend an hour and 10 minutes with all of the trans kids who would come into the office and either just need to be in my presence or ask for my support, or there would be teachers or administrators asking me questions about how to support these people. And this is a lot of unpaid labor, which I was happy to do because I wanted to support my own community. But I didn't see any evidence of anyone wanting to actually make changes beyond knowing how to handle one discrete situation. And... That bothered me. And as I try to advance equity in my own work setting, after I had been, I mean, my work history, um, which I will lay right out for you, was really, really traumatic. I started working in a hospital. Um, I got a really prestigious clinical fellowship, which is what you get right as you graduate from like a uh, medical or healthcare, um, like sciences type of graduate program where you do like a more intensely supervised residency for, for physicians. Um, 
Um, so I got a very prestigious clinical fellowship because I did very well within my studies. And I showed up on my first day with a tie and a sweater vest. It was a sweater vest onesie. I still have this because I still sometimes wear it for dramatic effect when I tell the story. I should actually be wearing it right now. It was a sweater vest onesie. So the, the sweater vest and the shirt that looks like a collared shirt are sewn together. And it came with a tie that tucked into like a little pouch right in the chest. And I showed up ready to learn, met my supervisor, super excited to get started. And the first thing that she said to me, and it was because she knew what my full legal name was, was you can't come to work in drag. I took my tie off, just kind of absorbed it and thought, I mean, first of all, she obviously doesn't know what drag is. Some queens out there are going to be, you know, like, oh, really? Like, I mean, the thing I was wearing, whew, that does not yeah, qualify. She doesn't know or didn't know what the fuck drag was at all but i'm i'm gonna stop because i was i was like viscerally offended just now but i'm gonna stop so you can continue the story so throughout that employment experience i continued to be told things like what i needed to wear what i needed to be called how i couldn't be called by the name that everyone called me by which is ac um since i was like you know 12 um it's just this is just the name that i've always been called that i couldn't be called that because it was a professional space and i shouldn't be alone with children and all of these like weird things that I was like, what is happening here? What does she think of me? Like, why is my gender presentation such a problem for this person? And then one day she came in with a clipboard and a sheet and a little pen tied to the clipboard to an extent where you could barely like use the pen because the, the string was so short that she created that was tied to the clipboard for me to use this as a log every time I went to the bathroom. And we are talking about it was a single stall. Anyone could use it. Patient provider, administrator, anyone walking past the unit, single stall, all gender restroom, and I had a log. And I said, why do I have to decide a bathroom log? And she said, well, I think you go to the bathroom too much. And I was like, I do? Because like, I, I thought I went just a normal amount, but I, I'm very conscientious about washing my hands. So I thought like, okay, maybe there's another sink I could use somewhere. And I remember I started going to another department to wash my hands between sessions so that I didn't have to sign this bathroom log. And eventually I was about six out of nine months into my clinical fellowship when one day the bathroom log, it just kept falling off the wall. So so this log hung on a hook where like our fax machine was and our assessment batteries and, and our phone and like where we would leave notes for other people like 4 p.m. You know, 4 p.m. aphasia group is canceled today. Um, You know, ALS grand rounds rescheduled for 930 on Friday morning. All of the things that we needed to communicate to our team were kind of in this little like hub and it was close to my office and the, the log kept falling off the wall and hitting the phone off the hook. And I was hearing like the eh, 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 when the phone was off the hook. And I just, it was like I boiled over and I wrote, I quit on the bathroom log, left it outside of my supervisor's door, packed up my stuff, told the secretary that I wasn't feeling well and I was going home and I never went back. And after that, I mean, I'll tell you, I'm gonna, I'm actually going to tell you my employment history because I feel like this is important for listeners. After that, I went to a school district where I was embraced and I was mentored and I felt so happy and I had always seen myself working in a medical setting but I was like you know what I love working with kids I am totally down to do whatever as long as I'm going to be happy at work I had a great year and the principal encouraged me to come out during this big um, event because they had this big like safe schools um, push and this was maybe to like the spring of 2006 and I was like all right you know I'll do it and I I came out and 
the very next day, my director, who is not the principal, called and fired me and said that I was making a family member of hers whose child was on my caseload uncomfortable. And there were no laws in place at that time to protect me. Um, after that, I went to a different school where at first also had a great experience, shared a shared a an office with my boss who was retired from like a different school district. She had tons of experience. She was really wonderful. And we had a great year. The next year, another person came in um, to take her place. And this was a younger woman who took an interest in me and it made me uncomfortable. I was either engaged. I was engaged at the time. I wasn't married. It, she was my boss and I didn't appreciate the advances. And when I reported it, the headmaster of this school, who is now in prison for sexual misconduct with a minor, basically said to me, you're asking for it isn't that what you're asking for basically looking like you and you should be lucky that this will you need to stop this lying you need to stop coming on to this podcast and lying to us about your work experience because this sounds absolutely insane that you have instance after instance with people acting inappropriately towards you mm -hmm. repeatedly and th but this is, this is common for trans people and i feel like people who listen to this podcast need to know this so i got no support there i left and then i went to um a highly regarded psychiatric hospital where i was working with uh adolescent inpatients and again i loved it felt supported and had a a client pop onto my caseload who whose name, it just was missing one letter. And they told me that their name was something else and that their pronouns were something else. And I was like, oh, I must have misread like the chart or the history, or maybe it was written down wrong. So I'm calling this kid and this is, I I had recloseted myself at this point. You know, it's like, we're talking 2008-ish. I was like, I'm just going to look weird and use pronouns that people expect me to to use because I, I can't do this anymore. But I was calling this kid by their affirmed name and pronoun. And I was called into an office, I guess, with the director and like the um, psychiatric supervisor. And they were like, what are you doing with this child? And I was like, um, well, language therapy. And here's like, you know, and I kind of gave the like the rundown of what like the treatment goals that I was working on. And they were like, no, you're calling him this name. And I was like, oh, is that not right? And they were like, you are giving into a delusion and... I then was fired. So this is one of the most highly regarded psychiatric institutions in the country that was practicing conversion therapy into 2008 and probably still is. Who knows? I don't because I no longer work there. I then found a little home in a school district in Somerville, Massachusetts, where I was able to work for 15 years, but I still still was that landing point for all the trans people. I was that that consult point for all the trans things. And I didn't see enough movement forward. And that's how my businesses were born. I, you know, now working as a professor at a university where things are a little bit different and I'm able to teach a trans health course, there are initiatives all over campus that are related to trans belonging. It feels very values aligned. This is the first time in my life that I've had a workplace that I feel like is evolving with me and with current culture every other place that i've been i have felt like my thoughts are are I, I, it's almost like a level of thought suppression to blend in and that is really oppressive and you know i i did love that job um and i had amazing co-workers and i loved the students and i felt i felt sad to leave but i needed to do something that evolved with me and that wasn't the spot you know that's that's what kind of birthed my consulting business while i was working there and brought me to the the work that i do now all of the work that i do now is the purpose of it is so that people 
people don't face what I faced. I was also rejected by my parents. I mean, there was a lot that I went through in my 20s with all of that workplace discrimination, not being on speaking terms with my parents. So I'm uh, going to hold you. I'm going to hold you there because we have sure. so many questions that I know has been chomping at the bit. So let's, I'm going to let you ask the next one. And I have one after that for you. Yeah, just going off of what you've shared. I mean, you're talking about a time period when we know protections were non-existent for trans people and you hear the rhetoric and also the surprise from parents, right? That they're bumping into discrimination today because I can, you know, I'm in Arizona. So I'll tell you that our universities are under attack with what they're teaching, right? Uh, being forced to roll back and that that gender affirming care is such a small part and a new part to what they teach in like the medical or the nursing colleges here. So now that you are in a place where this institution can grow with you, you can help develop plans, what are your feelings about what's been going on on campuses? Because it feels like a rollback. Like we had, I, what I always try to explain to people is it's not that you had it, like that trans people had their rights and now they're being restricted. It's that there were no rights and then we began winning in the courts, right? And so now we're having this huge backlash um, on the court case wins that we received in like, you know, 2011, 2014. Which were never even um, implemented as initiatives. And right. that's that's the whole thing is that, you know, trans people had these court wins where it's like, you know, hey, you can have health insurance. And then finally, a select number of people were able to access that. And then states are banning things at the same time. But I want to get back to what you said about campuses because, oh, sorry, do well, you have a question to interject? You no, know, and, and to echo on that, like my best friend uh, just won his legal battle for gender affirming care um, that when he sued the state of Arizona and the University of Arizona, right? But he was still denied the medical procedure he needed because now the, the state can't discriminate you, against you, but the insurance company can say that they won't give you access to the care you need, which is so frustrating. Oh, it's complete nonsense because those same insurance companies will cover things like breast augmentation for cisgender teenage girls. And I'm just like, what is the difference between that and a transgender adult? I mean, it, it, we're talking about boobs. We're not talking about brain surgery. We're not talking about something that's that risky, I, you know? And not only that, not only that, we're talking about the same exact procedures yes, the same on the procedure. same bodies. If you're talking about a woman with oversized breasts who goes for a breast reduction surgery or a trans man who goes for a breast reduction surgery, both of those people, both of those assigned female at birth people are having the same exact surgery. Mm -hmm. Why then is one treated differently because of a diagnosis of dysphoria and the other one just go and have it because they don't have that, like it doesn't make sense. And I'm gonna I'm gonna get off my soapbox now. I'm gonna let you answer the question that Lisa asked you about campuses because- Before I even answer the campus question, I'm gonna tell you that I paid over $10,000 out of pocket in 2008 or nine nine to have my top surgery in Florida with Dr. Charles Garamoni because there was absolutely no way that I was going to be able to get it covered by insurance in Massachusetts at that time. And he was the least expensive person that I could find. And I liked his work. I followed, you know, I followed some people who, who had had surgery with him. People wonder like, you know, oh, trans people are so financially disadvantaged. Like, you know, they mu there must be something wrong with them. No, it's because we have to pay for everything. I was lucky enough to actually have the time off from work at that time. But, you know, I could have had to 
leave a job for that just to just to have a few weeks to, to travel and to have surgery and to recover. I was lucky enough not to have that. I was also lucky at the time to be married and have a double income household. So I, I had less to worry about financially, but most people are not as fortunate. And, you know, I think what's really important to, to think about just in terms of what's happening with universities is as long as something can be controlled by the state, it will never truly be in the hands of the people. And we know this to be true. We know this historically to be true. And I'm not just talking about trans healthcare. I'm talking about all rights. When the state controls anything, whether it's access to insulin or it's DEI education, the people who actually are in charge of disseminating that information or signing off on the approval of that medication, they are being regulated by a body of legislators that are not representative of the people who are under their power and control. And it really goes into this hierarchy of our, you know, extremely racially and economically stratified society that is it's so oppressive when we think about people who, you know, live at the intersection of being, you know, black, trans and disabled. How's anyone going to get their health care? How's anyone going to get a career advancement or any of the resources that they need when these types of people are in charge of creating laws that intentionally are designed to suppress the population? Talk and about I mean, it. we know all of these things. So so I think that, you know, what's going on on university campuses right now is is terrifying because we know that the people who are in power are so desperately clinging to that power that they need to take away the advancement of knowledge to continue to kind of keep their invisible line between these this white autocratic state and um you know the the other people and that... I also want to I don't mean to cut you off but I also want to okay. highlight like <clears throat> I mean we've always had that, that is how systems work, right? Like I, systems and states' rights, it's a long, dark history. But I also think that there's what's felt unsurmountable for those of us doing grassroots work or advocating in our states against state legislatures is just the ways in which mis misinformation has and, and things like libs of TikTok, right? Like there was a thing that happened at the University of Arizona, which is, I, I live in Tucson, uh, a student screen grabbed from a Zoom class, right? A screenshot of um, a lesson on gender affirming care from the nursing college and libs of TikTok just threw it out there. So you had death threats, um, teacher was put on leave, you know, so so we're seeing students participating, right? Like we have Turning Point USA on our campus. It's constantly coming out and doing rallies and enacting violence. And while we know that universities are kind of this center or this hub of like youth political discourse, it's starting to feel super tenuous. And, and so you have, you know, the state regulating things, but you also have, you know, students at participating and when lobbies and organizations coming in and, um, you know, really disrupting and, and perpetuating harms and violence that are already occurring, right? And, and you are in Massachusetts. I know like Daniel that sounds like such a great place um you have trans you know trans health Northampton our doctor left to go up there mm -hmm. um and you know you all have statewide non-discrimination I'm wondering if that if you feel like that's a 
that that is also ensuring that your university maybe doesn't get impacted in the same ways as other states. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about that, but I want to skip to, you know, I love that Massachusetts has shield laws. I, I skip over that, but I'm going to come right back to it. I love that Massachusetts has shield laws, but they were not enough for us to feel safe during the political rhetoric of the last Trump presidency. And we actually moved to Ontario for a while and we moved back because guess what? It's not better there. Canada, if you, if you rolled back the rug, you would see the most rug swept nation of all time. White supremacy is more prevalent in that society. And I can give you so many examples. It's like not even hidden. It's overt. People who would come see me in my voice clinic were like, I need you to take my accent away because in order to get, my boss told me in order to get a promotion, I need to, I, I need to, you know, speak like a, a, a native Canadian. And I was like, well, you know, your problem is that I'm a doctor, not a racist. And your boss is a racist. And I don't know if I can help you. Like, I mean, like I can, but like, do I want to? Like, how am I, I'm going to erase someone's like, you know, cultural identity, like, and the way that they communicate so that they can get like advancement in their banking career. Like, it just made me feel very uncomfortable and that stuff like that was legal there but anyway circling back to what you said about um, college campuses and you know lips of tiktok and student political discourse when we think about where this is happening i happen i have the privilege of being in a private university in massachusetts even private universities in massachusetts are obviously not shielded from these types of controversies however the places where the most oppressive environments are being created are the most affordable places for non-white students in the country and i think it's really important that we think about the tools of oppression that are being applied and the the rationale behind Behind the application of these specific tools of oppression in these institutions. Because I, whereas I understand that there are different ways of regulating public and private industry, it is highly intentional that these types of restrictions on the types of topics that can be discussed and the types of initiatives and the types of departments that can exist within these colleges and universities happen to disproportionately be where the majority of students of color go in our country. These are the places that, are, that were formerly accessible and to be creating toxic environments is a strategy this is part of a bigger strat a bigger white supremacist strategy that you have to zoom way out to understand and i know that this is that we are way off topic from my you know little trans consulting platform but you know when you zoom way out and you think about the way that people who are you know these people who are in power who are clinging to their power very desperately by enacting this when we take away the right to safety of a black or brown college student, immigrant, LGBTQIA person in a state where they can afford to go to the state school and that's the only place that they can go however they can't be themselves, act like themselves, have any protections, then we take away college education for that whole strata of people. And this is just another tool of oppression and it's effective and it's scary that it's effective and it's really scary that there's more than one state government that's banning these things. I mean, just when you think about like the gender affirming care ban, how in Ohio, 641 people testified against the bill in person um, that the governor vetoed, then made more restrictions on, then the state overrode his veto. So now there's double the restrictions. My friends in Ohio are all getting their diagnoses changed from gender dysphoria to something else so that they can continue to access their medications. And when you think about what happened there, where 641 people showed up in person, and then for less than three minutes, one person out of the four people who goes around testifying out of the four 
detransitioners, which I would love to reframe to retransition because detransition is such a it's such a the wrong angle on it because retransition can happen for anyone at any time. But what I want to say about that is that there's four people that go around and testify over Zoom and they are listened to over every single person who is a constituent of the people in the state. The legislative bodies are not doing their job. They're not listening to their constituents. They're listening to paid outside consultants of which there are four. We talk about this. I mean, all the time we talk about this all the time because it is part of a campaign, as you said. And had to listen to them the last like five to seven years. I mean, Daniel, my son Daniel and I have sat through so many ledge sessions when we've listened to these people and, you know, um, they sound Paul like hostages. They sound like hostages to me. It's been a difficult experience. And I mean, we all know that it goes to systemic racism. Like Stephen and I often talk on this podcast about the desegregation of schools is at the core of everything that we're seeing. Like we understand the importance of public school systems, right? Like you have to have equitable education systems and yet it's become so tenuous and so exhausting. Like I'm I'm on year seven or something of, uh, you know, ledge session uh, stuff and having to do that level of advocacy in the state level. And we're really lucky we have a democratic governor, but I can't tell you how tired I am. Right. Because I live the world as like a brown woman and I'm cis and I'm and I'm, mar- I'm married to a man. I'm in a heterosexual relationship, but it's it's been exhausting and I can only imagine how exhausted you are. And yet people are still so unaware of like what's happening on their local college campuses. If you could tell like list your top three about what to look out for on campuses, how to help make campuses more safe, because you've been talking about that. What do you think it is? And how can professors, not just professors who are like directly impacted by policy, but like cis straight professors, how can they show up as allies in uh, university campuses in a way that feels effective? I mean, I think that it that depends highly on what restrictions are already in place in their, you know, in their university. Um, I know that there are some universities where like you can't wear or display a pride flag, um, you know, and I think that what I always tell people is, you know, wear, wear something on you. Don't have a sign in your office. Don't have a sign on the door. It's funny because I say that and then I look around my office and I have tons of them, but I don't like those things. What winds up happening is people change offices and people leave those safe space signs on the door and they leave those flags on the wall. And then you get a new person who doesn't actually have any sort of training or knowledge about the community sitting in there meeting with someone who, you know, believes them to be an ally because they look around and that that's, you know, that's always uncomfortable. I always tell people wear something on your person. You know, if your university bans pronouns, then wear a pronoun pin and don't talk about it. Having those little signals to people that help them understand that you are there for them and that, you know, well, the university doesn't allow you to teach about these topics, you know, if anyone wants to have a conversation with you about, you know, the things that you know about gender affirming care or LGBTQ legislation, like, you know, come find me. Like, I'm happy to talk to you all about the things that I know because nobody regulates private conversation. It's just what's taught in the classroom. So private conversation can go a long way. I think it's really important that people remember that, like, 
university professors, they're, you know, bound to a code of conduct, but like giving someone access to information and resources is never going to violate that code of conduct, especially if it's outside of your classroom. Um, you know, a university can't have a policy that a professor can't share resources. And if they do have a policy that a professor can't share resources or information with students, then they would have to be very specific about what they are. And I don't think anyone is at that level of, you know, policing people yet. And, you know, if they do get there, that would stink. But I, you know, I, I don't I don't believe that that can be made so specific in so many, you know, different states that are like banning a certain level of participation in like DEI conversation or topics in the classroom. I think that you just have to keep it in your classroom, keep it to what your university makes you, you know, makes you keep to and then privately make students know, you know, hey, I'm available for conversation. I have resources if you want to learn more about this. I'm just not allowed to teach you. I think that it's really important to continue showing up. I also think it's really important if you are like, if you're a professor, you work at a university and you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I can't do anything like that at work because it's so oppressive. Then make your personal like Instagram or your personal Twitter public. And, you know, when you make your personal Instagram or your personal Twitter public, have your pronouns there. Like, so that way, if someone looks you up, they see like, oh, you know, he's got a public like Instagram of pictures of, you know, of art and he's got his pronouns listed you know show people um in other ways because people will look you up they will look look up what you're doing but you know in terms of i, I have a lot of uh, advice for university campuses in terms of housing um but that's the, the topic of a whole different podcast that i could go on about for, nope, for hours nope. and hours we're gonna have you on another show because this is so interesting and and, and we've gone into so many different areas none of the areas like People have to understand, we prep for these conversations and then we get a guest like AC who just like straight into the stratosphere with all of the things that are in his head. So I'm going to bring you back to something you said at the very outset when you were talking about your work experience and you were specifically talking about like how your parents didn't really set you up for success because of how they received you. So can you talk about you know, because you shared that with me in, in our first conversation, you talked about kind of the strained relationship you have with your parents and how that kind of, I think, just from listening to you talk, kind of set the table for a lot of the experiences that you had and your responses to a lot of those experiences. And it's important for parents listening to our show to hear about the wrong way to receive someone inviting you to their identity. So can you just talk about your experience briefly? Sure. As I started figuring out who I was, my parents became more and more uncomfortable with me. I didn't really have words for transgender or anything like that, but I started to wear clothes that felt comfortable to me. And my parents would say things like, you can't wear that or what's wrong with you or like, what, you know, why do you look like that? Why are you going out like that? Why are you dressed like that? Why are you friends with this person? Why are you engaging in these activities? And all of the things that they were uncomfortable with were things that when I look back on it, it's because I was doing things that fell outside of what they thought I should be doing based on their expectations of me because of my sex assigned at birth. It really didn't have to do with, I wasn't doing anything bad. I was getting straight A's. I was going to an Ivy League college. I was, you know, doing all the things. I always had a job. I always had friends. I always, you know, was doing things for myself. When I think back about what a good kid I was and how poorly I was received, I can't stress 
to listeners enough how damaging that was to me psychologically. Because, you know, what wound up happening was um, a family um, whose kids I babysat from the neighborhood kind of took me in. And when I would have to go home from college, instead of going to my parents' house, I would go and stay with them. I spent as much time as possible babysitting and hanging out with these cool kids who really did not care what I was wearing. And their parents who, you know, kind of sat down with me and were like, explain it to us. And I was like, this is just like what I look like and who I am. But like, you know, on paper, I'm great. And they were like, all right, we don't care what you look like. You know, we're just gonna, you know, we're gonna have you here. Like our kids seem to really like you. You seem to really get our vibe and everything's fine here. My parents, both being medical professionals, my mom specifically being a psychologist, there was a lot of pushback. And I believe that to be due to her just shame. She felt a lot of shame around my being trans. And when I did finally have the words for it, that's when things got even worse with my parents. When I was in my early 20s and I was like, hey, I just met a trans guy and found out that that's what I am because that exists. That's when things got even worse. And, you know, as I tried to explain it, my mom was like, this is a very specific mental illness that, you know, we can send you away to take care of. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't sound like the thing that I want to do with my life right now. I am a busy graduate student. And, you know, that's like, I'm totally not into conversion therapy at this time. And my dad just was like, this is bizarre and I can't even process it. He had been very oppressed by his mother in childhood. Um, she wouldn't let him do art. He now is a retired dentist. He sculpts. He paints. He has leaned very heavily into the things that he was kept from doing. He's a musician. He wasn't allowed to do any of that stuff when he was little. Um, my grandmother wanted him playing sports or being a doctor. There was a lot of gender conditioning. And there was a lot of gender conditioning for my mother as well. Um, you know, I was raised in a Jewish household, more secular than religious, but there were still a lot of gender role expectations that were sort of generally generationally passed down that felt inescapable. But when I think back on it, really, it was like everything was the same, but from a different angle for, you know, quote, men and women. And I don't really understand why the separation, but it was so, you know, harmful to me to have my parents reject me that I didn't recognize. I mean, I did recognize workplace abuse, but I tolerated it far more than I should have. I tolerated negative situations to a point where I was like, I have thick skin and I can just get through this. I can show up every day for six more years and deal with this. That's not good for someone's mental well-being, you know? And it wasn't really until I started speaking out about this stuff that I realized how unwell I had been throughout that period of my life. But when I look back on it on paper, I was still achieving all of these really great things. And I was still, I had my act together and, you know, I got, I got married, bought a house, started a family. I was very unwell. I was, you know, forcing myself through the day to, you know, masking all of this, you know, emotional trauma that I had because I felt like there was no safe place to express it because my safest place, my parents, had been taken away from me. I know that we all talk to parents a lot of trans kids and there's a lot of things that um, parents react with that are commonalities. Um, you know, they react with grief. They mourn someone's previous gender presentation, like all of the expectations that they had that, you know, that are gendered. They argue or bicker about names. They say, you know, I'll never, you know, you'll always be my daughter. You'll always be my son. Um, there's a lot of commonalities of the things that parents do and say that need to be broadly unlearned by society. You know, in general, I think that we need to do a lot less gendering. I, I'm going to I'm going to talk about something really niche again, because this is what happens with my brain. This is you invite 
invite me on a podcast to talk about one thing, and I'm going to talk about all the things because that's what my brain does. We're here for it. A niche thing. So the gender behavior feedback loop begins in utero. A parent finds out the shape of their unborn baby's genitalia. And the first thing that happens is they develop expectations. But the second thing that happens is they change their language. They change the way that they talk to an unborn baby or a newborn based on what they believe their gender to be. And this is why there are language and developmental differences between, quote, girls and, quote, boys. And why all of the developmental data that we have about, you know, quote, boy development and girl development is wrong because there are trans kids in all of those samples. But when we think about how people talk to infants... We've got people talking to infants who, you know, were assigned female at birth and they're saying like, oh, look at her long, delicate fingers. And they have these high voices with lots of melodic contour. And oh, she's so beautiful. And look at her. Look at her dainty toes. And when they look at an infant boy, who's my little slugger? And then we wonder why there are these language, developmental, behavioral differences it's our expectations that we place upon them and we start doing this before babies are even born. And I think that there needs to be sort of a broader push for people to understand that their gendered feedback they give to infants, that impacts the way that your child develops. It impacts the way that they communicate. It impacts the way that they behave. And if So hold giving- on, Doc. Hold on, mm. Doc, because you shared another story with me, okay? I'm, I'm spilling all the tea on you today. You shared another story with me about your experience with your own child and the fact that you were not the receptacle of information that oh, yeah. you're challenging your own parents and other parents who oh, were yeah. in similar situations with. So let's talk about let's you talk about for that. a second, Dr. AC. You're let's. on the couch now. So my 11-year-old comes to me when he's two years and seven months old and says, I'm not a girl. And I say, okay. And then I think, how does he even know what that means? And how do I know what that means for him, right? How do I process this? It was like his first fully formed thought that he was able to express. And I was like, okay, you know, that's fine. He was a a very strong-willed toddler. Um, Both of my kids were very strong-willed, very strong-willed toddler. He was dressing in the things that he wanted to dress in, which was actually a Spider-Man costume every day, all day for at least two years. He was dressing as Spider-Man every day. And I was like, okay, you know, what should we call you? You know, uh, Spider-Man sound good? Like, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you want. But I I was like, head scratch, head scratch. What do I do with this information? Because do I teach my toddler, you can be anything you want, which, you know, I felt comfortable opening the door to, or do I start trying to tell him, well, you can be a boy and you can use this name and you can use these pronouns. Maybe you're non-binary and you can use this name and these pronouns. And I kind of froze. And I was like, let's just accept that this is true and see how it plays out in, you know, the next couple of years, because I don't want to to like ascribe someone a male like I was wrong already I don't want to be like okay then you're a boy or okay then you're non-binary because how how did I know you know he knew but I I didn't know how to heal how to really react aside from just to accept it as a reality and wait to see what happened and I will fast forward the story to you know and we we loved him and we let him wear his spider-man you know uniform for many years and um we just you know assumed okay well when 
he's, you know, when he understands, because we have a lot of gender diversity in our friend group, in the parents that we know, and the kids that we know, when he figures himself out, he'll tell us. Well, he didn't. He told his friends. And I got a text from a uh, friend of his that says, you know, hey, uh, or a friend's parent, he was in kindergarten, says, hey, can um, name come over on Saturday afternoon? And I was like, this is so-and-so's dad, you know, running back. And I was like, you must have the, like, you're, you're thinking of the wrong kid. And so she calls me and she's like, so, you know, um, AC, I know you're trans. So like, maybe this won't be as awkward as I'm feeling it is. But like, your kid's been using like a different name and pronoun at school for a while now. And I was like, oh, thank you for telling me. Because, you know, we live in Cambridge, Massachusetts in a safe space where people aren't, the teachers aren't calling us and outing the kid, where all of that, where all the right things are actually happening. And, you know, then I have this communication with a parent. So I call my kid in and I'm like, hey, like, do you want to go over and play with Hayes on Saturday? Yes, I do. Okay. And in that same line of questioning, his mom called you this name. Is that you, the name that you want us to call you? Yes. His mom also used he, him pronouns for you. Like instead of, you know, she, her, they, them, or those, the pronouns you. Yes. Okay. Do you want me to tell mom? Yes. So, and, and it was just, you know, immediate change at home and not any sort of like huge, we didn't even have a discussion about it because it was like, okay, you know, should I tell grandma? Should I tell grandpa? Like, who are you comfortable with? Let me help expand your circle. But it was maybe like two and a half years from that first sentence to that moment where you know, there was room for me to have grown more quickly than I did, but I froze. As a trans person myself, I didn't expect it. I didn't expect it. But I also didn't have like a mourning or grieving. I didn't have this huge process that I had to go through that I feel like so many parents have to go through to unlearn. But it still took me by surprise how young someone can be when they say those things and how true those things are to, you know, who he still yeah. is. He knew himself well, we know as a toddler. Research shows that, you know, kids can discern and understand gender at 36 months. So this idea of your two and a half, three year old, right? My kid was my kid was two and a half as well. Um but I, I think too, because you've said grief a lot, <laughs> I do. Uh, and 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 Stephen knows this. On uh, here, we don't subscribe to grief, right? Because it's so much of. I think as a society, you you've touched on a lot of things. As a society, we have such a hard time because we could never admit that we were a racist country. I mean, we just had Nikki Haley say racism was not real, right? Oh, and so, it, grief is like this soft word uh, that allows parents to not have to admit their own transphobia, right? Like this idea of like I've lost this thing and it often I think what what it does is it harms the child because it blames their identity for uh the shift in their experience right parents what I, I run a parent group and I and I and I've helped other organizations and so I've spoken to hundreds of families over the years and often when I have to like okay well what is it that you're afraid of what is it and really it's all the external things and I'm like well that's not your child's gender identity and so that's not really what we're sad about. What we're sad about is the bias that we're experiencing from these external factors, right? Mm -hmm. And reframing we're scared that conversation of the is so important. And I also want to say, I have the hardest time with parents that have medical degrees because there's this barrier of proof that their children have to go through, right? Like mm -hmm. prove to me that this is a real experience. And so you are not alone in that experience of having medical professionals that are parents that are like, I'm not sure if I believe you, right? Like, yeah. and for me, I think 
I love your story because that is so true to my story. I think it's true to Steven's story too of like, I mean, Steven's kid was older, but being like, like wanting to be receptive, also not wanting to force the situation. And then your kid, their kid, like having your kid tell everyone but you and you're like, oh God, what, what did I do that I wasn't the safe pocket to come to, right? Because I learned about my child through his friend as well right like his friend was like hey can he and i go play in the soccer field and i was like sure (laughs) and then we had to have (laughs) this longer conversation and so i'm thank you for sharing these stories because i think it's so important i think people i think parents that shame comes from like um not wanting to do the wrong thing and then like all of a sudden there's really no right and wrong way our kids are just trying to like communicate and tell us these things and it's how we show up afterwards I think that is the most important I agree with you and I feel like what parents universally need to get a grip on is your child comes first not your mother-in-law not your auntie, not your not your sister, not your great aunt who's, you know, believes in, in fairness and in women's sport. Your child comes first. Your child is the person who needs you in the world. Those people don't need you. They're passing judgment on you and other people. Your child comes first. Your child's well-being comes first. And supporting your child is every parent's. It that's that's the mission of parenting, right? You want to, you know, you want to, you bring something into the world, you, you nurture it and you let it succeed. I mean, this is, this is the, this is the, the, the arc of parenting. And then you get to enjoy a mutual benefit of, you know, respect and love. And people who are not prioritizing this relationship with their child have the wrong lens. You know, people who are so worried about external judgment to the point where they won't let their child come out to the point where like when my mom talks on the phone to her friends about me, she's still using the wrong name and pronouns, not realizing that all of her friends know me and they know me professionally because they're medical professionals and they've taken education with me and they can talk about me using the right name and pronouns. She still has that sort of this person knows you as this because this is how I use to talk about you and it's too shameful for me to to you know get through a conversation there and- i'm sorry i'm gonna have to i'm just gonna have to just jump in really right quickly right here because one of the things that we do on this podcast is teach parents about the right things to do and the wrong things to do and what you're talking about right now parents who are listening to this podcast is the Don't wrong thing to do do not dead name your child and then explain to the person you're dead naming your child to while it's okay for you to dead name your child or to misgender your child because that's how you used to that's wrong thing to do continue i'm sorry oh no i mean it is the wrong thing to do and you know at the same time it's like my parents are relearning this through watching me parent my child and that has been probably the most healing thing for our relationship is them learning to respect me and watch me as a parent i mean that's really that's really been great because when i was going through all of that employment discrimination i couldn't share that with them they weren't there for me and that was really difficult it's very nice to have now kind of come to a place of healing with them and a place of repair where they can be sort of along with me on my parenting journey and they can watch me make mistakes and they can also watch me undo things that you know harmed me from my own upbringing i was having um uh, texting back and forth with um my good friend ina who is a trans journalist and she sent me this message because yesterday obviously was really hard. We saw kind of like this, you know, ramp up of bills moving yeah. and passing. And Ina said, the hardest thing for me has 
been to see the joy of this generation get to be affirmed and be supported for the most part by their families and their parents and be affirmed in schools and get to live as themselves. You know, she said more succinctly, she's a journalist. And she said to see it all be swept away just as this first generation is actually launching is so heartbreaking. And so my final question to you is, if you could tell this generation, speak directly to them if they listen to this and their, and speak to their parents, what do you want them to know? We were trans before we had rights. We're still trans and we'll be trans if our rights are taken away. You have everything going for you if you have the love and support of your family. And there is absolutely no measure that the government can take against you that can take away who you are and that can take away the power of the love that you have with the people who you are close to in your life. And if you have that support, no matter what hardship comes to you, you will be okay because you will be supported. And as a community, we will all keep supporting each other no matter what happens because laws can't change who we are. They can make it more difficult for us to get health care. They can make it more difficult for us to get employment, but they can't take our personhood away. They also can't take away the love and the joy and the spark that we have in our lives. Lives and just hold on to that and know that it's going to be a rough ride, but there is light at the end of the tunnel because this community is a rainbow and we're just getting to the other side of that arch. Oh my God. Thank you Can we you have you so on much. again? Yes. Yes. No, we're going to have you on again and we're going to yeah. have a much more structured, nah, fuck that. We're going to have the same kind of conversation every single Let's time. Let's just chat. Every single time. But I actually do. I actually love freeform conversations because- I think this is how you really get to know people is when the conversation just goes where it goes and you don't try to curate the conversation. And I just love that you got up here and Kiki with us and we just had this amazing conversation. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Goldberg. I'm going to call you so Dr. Much. Goldberg oh and not goodness. AC as we close out. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. This has been such a pleasure. Now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, who are we talking about today? Stephen, our ally of the week is Ohio Democratic Representative Chantel Brown. Democratic Rep. Chantel Brown issued a statement last week that made it clear that she stood with individuals, families, and medical professionals who would be affected by House Bill 68, which bans gender-affirming care for minors. The bill, which will come into effect in 90 days, makes Ohio the 22nd state to introduce laws that restrict trans minors from accessing gender-affirming care and the 25th to restrict trans girls and women from taking part in women's school sports teams. Criticizing the decision to override the governor's veto and pass the cold, callous, and calculated bill, Representative Brown said in a skating statement, I strongly condemn the override of Governor DeWine's veto and will continue to stand with my constituents in defense of their right to make their own health care decisions. I really applaud Representative Brown because it's very rare that you have cisgender people actively stepping into the breach to defend the rights of transgender people. And in these culture wars that we're seeing being fought across the country, having allies like Representative Brown is so important. And this is why Representative Chantel Brown is our ally of the Congratulations to Representative Brown. Now onto our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week is Bud Light. Apparently, 
Bud Light has come full circle. The brand went from making progressive moves and partnering with transgender social media influencer Dylan Mulvaney to partnering with far-right comedian Shane Gillis, a comedian who has been called out for his racist and homophobic comments. Bud Light dumped Mulvaney, stating that they didn't want to make any political statements, and then turned around and aligned with a comedian fired from SNL for making racist and transphobic jokes. And this was after partnering with Dana White's UFC, whose middleweight champion was caught in a profanity-laced tirade against gay people. And this is why Bud Light is our asshole of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Dr. A.C. Goldberg, for joining us today. And of course, I'd like to thank my always awesome and amazing co-host, Lisette Trujillo, for holding me down once again. Thank you, Stephen, for doing this podcast with me. I can't tell you how appreciative I am of you. And I want to thank all of our listeners because we couldn't do it without all of you. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Folks, please be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the things you need to do to stay up to date with everything going on here at the Parent Advocate Podcast. Bye. Goodbye. If you're thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.